The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Upstream and Downstream Targeting of the Complement Pathway to Manage PNH, Current and Emerging Inhibitors. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash YQK860. Downloadable materials are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Carlos DeCastro from Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to this educational activity, Upstream and Downstream Targeting of the Complement Pathway to Manage PNH, Current and Emerging Inhibitors. In a few moments, we'll take an animated tour of the complement pathway activation in PNH and the biological rationale for the new inhibitors targeting proximal and terminal complement pathways. Let's first start by taking a closer look at the etiology and pathogenesis of PNH. What is PNH? PNH is a rare and unusual acquired hematological disorder characterized by intravascular hemolysis, bone marrow failure with cytopenias, and thrombosis, and any or all three of these can be present. There is great clinical heterogeneity amongst patients with PNH. What causes PNH? It takes two things, really, and they can occur in either order. First, a mutation has to happen in the PIG-A gene, you know, hematopoietic stem cell. And secondly, there has to be a condition that allows this mutant cell to become the dominant cell in the bone marrow. The PIG-A gene mutation by itself is not oncogenic. It does not confer any growth advantage to cells. So therefore, something has to allow these cells to predominate in the bone marrow. And we think that something is an immune assault on the bone marrow. PIG-A codes for the first step in manufacturing GPI-anchored proteins. CD55 and CD59 are complement-regulated proteins, which are linked to the cell membrane by GPI anchors. These regulatory proteins are specifically responsible for protecting red blood cells from complement-mediated lysis. They put the brakes on complement activation and prevent formation of the membrane attack complex, or MAC, and red cell destruction. However, in PNH, the GPI anchor proteins are missing or defective due to this mutation of the PIG-A gene. Due to this, CD55 and CD59 complement regulatory proteins are unable to be attached to the cell membrane. This leads to unregulated complement activation, formation of the MAC complex, and ultimately red cell destruction, hemolysis, and we believe this also causes thrombosis and inflammation. Normal red cells are protected from complement attack by a shield of terminal complement inhibitors, such as CD55 and 59. When complement is activated, these cells are able to protect themselves. However, in PNH cells, these proteins are missing. Therefore, when complement is activated, the red cells lyse. The PNH red cells are destroyed, and this leads to anemia. In addition, the free hemoglobin that is released from these cells causes a squelching of nitric oxide, which leads to smooth muscle dystonias. And this in turn can lead to chest pain, difficulty swallowing, abdominal pain, et cetera. The red cells, if they are destroyed to a high enough extent and release enough hemoglobin, can lead to hemoglobinuria. And all of these patients complain of marked fatigue. Long-term, these patients can develop pulmonary hypertension and renal failure. And some patients, it's clear that complement activation leads to thrombotic events, which can have a significant impact on survival. So the clinical picture of PNH involves three things. First, there's bone marrow failure with peripheral cytopenias, and there can be overlap with both aplastic anemia and myelodysplastic syndromes. Second, there can be this intravascular hemolysis leading to hemoglobinuria with dark urine, and if brisk enough, this can cause renal insufficiency. Long-term, the kidneys will filter the hemosiderin and the iron, and this can lead to renal insufficiency. Many of these patients complain of fatigue, dyspnea, chest pain, abdominal pain, dysphagia, and in males, erectile dysfunction. Finally, patients with PNH can present with blood clots, and up to 40% of them will eventually develop blood clots. 
And we've known for a long time that this is a major cause of mortality in these patients. The blood clots can occur in any location, but are common in the GI tract, leading to Bud-Chiari syndrome and or mesenteric or splenic vein thrombosis. So in PNH, clinical suspicion of PNH requires several diagnostic tests. We start with getting a complete blood count and reticulocyte count to show there's hemolysis. We measure the LDH, the bilirubin, and the haptoglobin, again, as markers of hemolysis. In certain patients with cytopenias, it may be necessary to do a bone marrow aspirate biopsy and obtain cytogenetics. And finally, the diagnostic test for PNH involves flow cytometry, which should be done on both peripheral blood red cells and granulocytes. We are looking for a population of these cells that is deficient in these GPI-anchored proteins. We use flow cytometry against these GPI-anchored proteins, such as CD55 or 59, to look for their absence, and any sample with greater than 1% of the cells missing these proteins is labeled as being a PNH. We can also use the flare assay, which was developed by Rob Brodsky at Johns Hopkins, which binds to the GPI anchor itself rather than to any single protein such as CD55 or CD59. Flare can only be run on white cells because of nonspecific binding to red cells, but it provides a much greater signal-to-noise ratio and better accuracy than any antibody against a single antigen. We'll switch now to talking about the current standard of care and treatment goals for patients with PNH. The current standard of care for those that have hemolysis, which is a major factor in PNH, involves complement inhibition. And three drugs have been FDA approved for this. This includes the C5 inhibitors, eculizumab and ravulizumab, and the C3 inhibitor, pegcetacopin. Supportive care is always an important part of caring for these patients. And these can include things such as oral iron, folate, vitamin B12, and red cell transfusions. In this day and age, allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant has a very limited role and should probably be reserved for those with severe cytopenias that do not respond to immunosuppressive therapy or to those who have blood clots despite being on complement inhibition. The treatment goals involve controlling intravascular hemolysis, increasing hemoglobin levels, resolving symptoms, improving quality of life, and reducing the risk of thrombosis and long-term complications of the disease. Eculizumab was the first drug approved for treatment of PNH. Eculizumab is a humanized anti-C5 antibody. It binds with high affinity to C5, and all terminal complement activity is blocked. Proximal functions of the complement, however, remain intact. The initial studies of eculizumab were done in the early 2000s and started with a pilot study done by Pete Hillman that was published in the New England Journal involving 11 patients who all responded to this drug. The TRIUMPH study was the registry study that was a pivotal phase three double-blinded study, and Shepard was a safety study conducted nearly at the same time. These studies showed an 86% reduction in hemolysis a 92% reduction in thrombotic events, a 73% reduction in the need for transfusions, and significant reduction in fatigue and improvement in quality of life measures. All of these patients went on to a long-term extension study until the drug was eventually approved. Caveats are that these drugs do not treat PNH-associated bone marrow failure, which we think is more T-cell mediated, and do not usually restore the hemoglobin to normal levels. Ravulizumab is similar to eculizumab. However, it has a much longer half-life as it was engineered to do this. Two phase three trials were done of ravulizumab, one in DNH treatment-naive patients and the other done in those that were on eculizumab. Both of these studies were non-inferiority studies and compared ravulizumab to eculizumab. These studies showed that both drugs were equally efficient at avoiding transfusions, in normalizing LDH, in changing facet fatigue scores, 
and there was a slightly lower rate of breakthrough hemolysis in the ravulizumab compared to eculizumab in the 301 study. At this time, we can say that both these drugs are similar and are not necessarily superior to one another, but are uh, at least have a non-inferior rate. However, ravulizumab is given on an every eight-week schedule as opposed to eculizumab, which is given on an every two-week intravenous schedule. We now have two-year data from the phase three study, again, showing that ravulizumab reduces the risk of thrombosis in patients with PNH and high disease activities who are at an increased risk of developing these thrombotic events. So we are very comfortable with ravulizumab having good effects both on hemolysis and on preventing thrombotic events. There are some limits, however, to C5-targeting therapy. Despite benefits of targeting C5, responses to these two drugs are a little bit heterogeneous. Most patients continue to have a low level of hemolysis ongoing, and up to 25 to 35% are still requiring red cell transfusions. Eculizumab prevents intravascular hemolysis, but probably unmasked low levels of extravascular hemolysis. And we believe this is occurring through optimization of the PNH red cells by C3 fragments, which leads to extravascular cell clearance through the reticuloendothelial system. This effect may contribute to low-level hemolysis and red cell transfusion requirements. And because of this, we think there are patients who are suboptimal responders to C5-targeted therapy, and there's a need for novel agents to treat these patients. In addition, there are other unmet needs, including avoidance of IV drugs and quality of life. The C3 inhibitor pegcetacoplan was recently approved by the FDA for treating PNH. Pegcetacoplan is a pegylated pentadecapeptide, a compostatin analog that targets C3, a part of the proximal complement protein. Because of this, we think it will block both intravascular and extravascular hemolysis in PNH. Several initial clinical studies were done with this compound, including PADOC, which was an open-label pilot study with two-dose cohorts in complement inhibitor-naive patients, Palomino, which was a phase 2A open-label single-cohort study done again in complement inhibitor-naive patients, and FARO, which was the phase 1B open-label prospective non-randomized dosing study. This was done in patients who were suboptimal responders with eculizumab and who were still anemic. Finally, Pegasus was the pivotal phase 3 trial that I'll show the data on. In Pegasus, patients were randomized to either getting onto eculizumab monotherapy or pegcetacoplan monotherapy. These were patients who were suboptimal responders to eculizumab and had been on a stable dose for a period of time. There was a four-week run-in period when patients, when all participants in the study received both drugs, and this was to prevent any hemolysis by stopping the eculizumab. And you can see during that four-week run-in period, all of the patients in the study had a hemoglobin that rose from 8.7 on average up to around 11.8 or 11.9 starting on week 16, which is the endpoint of the study, where the primary endpoint was to look at the hemoglobin level. Patients on eculizumab fell back to that baseline of around 8.6, whereas those on pegcetacoplan had a median level of hemoglobin of 11.5. Additional analysis of the Pegasus study looked at the hematological response and found a greater proportion of patients with a better hematological response with pegcetacoplan compared to eculizumab. Quality of life in these patients who were suboptimal responders to eculizumab showed substantial and clinically relevant improvements in quality of life consistently observed with pegcetacoplan when compared to eculizumab at week 16. And prior transfusion requirements also showed better outcomes with pegcetacoplan versus eculizumab, regardless of any sort of characteristic, including baseline age group, sex, race, prior number of transfusions, or platelet count. So as I mentioned, this drug was FDA approved to treat adults with PNH in May of this year. The questions that remain are, should we be using this in patients only with suboptimal responses to C5 inhibitor therapy, 
or should this therapy be used up front? Certainly there are dosing considerations and rad administration considerations. Ravulizumab is given as an IV loading dose two weeks apart, and then maintenance dose is given every eight weeks, whereas pexidocoplan requires a sub-Q administration given twice weekly. Patients are given a device which they are taught how to use and can administer this at home. The choice of the complement inhibitor therapy may be a little bit patient-driven, with some patients preferring to administer their own treatment at home, whereas others prefer treatment in a clinical setting given at a longer interval. It's pretty clear that this drug will have a role in patients with anemia due to extravascular hemolysis who are symptomatic and those that are suboptimal responders to eculizumab or ravulizumab. We'll now look at the newer emerging inhibitors targeting proximal complement pathways. We'll discuss the recent clinical evidence of these novel therapies and gain insights on integrating them in day-to-day clinical practice when they become available. We'll first talk about two factor D inhibitors, the nicopan and the compound BCX9930. Factor D is essential to initiating the alternative pathway. Blocking factor D blocks the alternative pathway in all downstream products. Meaningful improvements in hemoglobin and transfusion needs by factor D inhibitor in the treatment of PNH in combination with ectolizumab have been demonstrated, and this benefit is likely due to the prevention of C3-mediated extravascular hemolysis in addition to control of the intravascular hemolysis. In terms of the factor D inhibitors, a phase three trial evaluating denicopan as an add-on therapy to a C5 inhibitor in patients with PNH with suboptimal responses is currently ongoing. The REDEEM-1 and REDEEM-2 are two upcoming pivotal trials. This drug is given orally, and oral formulation may certainly be viewed favorably by both patients and doctors. Pending further data, this drug may provide another option in the PNH armamentarium. Now let's take a look at a novel complement factor B inhibitor, LNP023 or iptocopin. You've just seen how iptocopin works. Now let's talk more about the recent clinical evidence on iptocopin and how to integrate these novel inhibitors in day-to-day clinical practice. Iptocopin underwent an open-label, single-arm, multi-center, multiple-dose, phase two proof-of-concept study. Patients to be eligible for the study had to have active hemolysis with suboptimal responses during standard-of-care anti-C5 treatment. 10 patients were placed on the study, and the drug was given in combination with the anti-C5 treatment. The primary endpoint of the study was the effect on intravascular hemolysis as measured by an LDH at 13 weeks. Secondary endpoints included the effect of hemolysis in general, including transfusion avoidance, hemoglobin concentration, reticulocyte count, bilirubin levels, and PNH erythrocyte clone size. The effect on intravascular hemolysis was measured by haploglobins and free hemoglobin concentrations or an extravascular hemolysis by C3 fragment deposition. And finally, safety was looked at in the study. In the phase two study, treatment with iptocopin administered twice daily orally with concomitant eculizumab was performed. Here are two of the endpoints, including the LDH, which rapidly decreased within one to two weeks and stayed down close to the upper limit of normal. In addition, there were rises in the hemoglobin, again, seen fairly rapidly within one to two weeks, and these were sustained in in many patients being above the lower limit of normal. Seven patients were able to discontinue eculizumab and continued iptocopin on monotherapy and continued to maintain the reduced level of LDH and the increased hemoglobin. There were no treatment discontinuations, and there were no treatment-related serious adverse events. Transfusion independence went down nicely in these patients. You can see here the number of transfusions they were receiving one year before study entry, and after the time to study entry, they went down to zero. The safety profile of this drug was very favorable. 
There were three serious adverse events, two in the same patient, none of which were considered related to the iptocopin. Of primary importance was there were no encapsulated bacterial infections in this study, proving that this drug probably can be safely given to patients. Nine out of 10 patients that reported at least one adverse event during the study, but most of these were only possibly related to iptocopin. Two phase three studies of iptocopin are now ongoing. The APPLY study is an active open-label randomized superiority trial of iptocopin versus anti-C5, either aculizumab or ravulizumab therapies in patients who are, again, suboptimal responders despite anti-C5 therapy. And the primary outcomes are looking at a sustained increase of greater than two grams per deciliter of hemoglobin in the absence of red cell transfusions and sustained hemoglobin levels of greater than 12 grams per deciliter in the absence of red cell transfusions. The APPOINT study is a single-arm, open-label study of twice-daily ipticopin given in patients who are naive to any complement inhibitor therapy, including anti-C5 therapy. And again, the primary outcome is a sustained increase of greater than 2 grams per deciliter of hemoglobin in the absence of transfusions. The next steps for ipticopin and potential implications. The drug was granted breakthrough therapy designation in December 2020. The efficacy is demonstrated in patients with ongoing intravascular hemolysis despite eculizumab. There was no breakthrough intravascular hemolysis observed. The open-label phase 3 extension trial has started. Oral therapy is going to be very appealing to many patients. And unfortunately, the phase 2 study was a small study, so we need additional safety data needed, including the risk of infections and thromboembolic events. Additional choices means more flexibility on treatment for all our patients. There is a little bit of concern about what would happen if you miss a dose or if you went on a trip and forgot your pills or if there was noncompliance. Adverse event management strategies with PNH therapies to ensure optimal patient outcomes and adherence. We want to make sure that there's not an increased risk of infections as we test more of these agents as they are part of our immune system. We also want to make sure long-term that the risk of thromboembolic events stays low that these patients continue to enjoy a good quality of life, and hopefully that these patients have improved survival. The key takeaways for today's talk are that the options for PNH are clearly expanding. This will allow for better individualization of therapy. Longer-term efficacy and safety data are awaited. While cure is not in sight, new drugs will convert this disease into a more manageable condition, and curative treatments are currently being conceptualized. That concludes our exploration of proximal and terminal complement pathway inhibitors, their different mechanisms of action, and the implications of those differences in PNH management. I hope you found this activity interesting and useful for your practice. Thank you for joining me. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YQK860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.